Welcome to another Directions Mag podcast, co-hosted with our friends at Eurissa. Hi, my name is Rachel and I am a second year PhD student at Arizona State University. I'm also a former Vanguard cabinet member of Eurissa and a current Eurissa member. The Eurissa Directions Magazine podcast series this year will explore the theme of new and now. How did geospatial technology start? Where is it now? And what are some current focus areas or points of interest? Today, I'll be facilitating a podcast focused on geofencing warrants. So geofencing is a geospatial technology that alerts people to know when a device enters, leaves, or lingers in an area. And it's a concept that has been around the industry for more than 30 years. Like many aspects of geospatial technology, interest and applications for geofencing are discovered and picked up by a variety of groups to address information, organizational workflows, and improve processes. Today, we welcome a return guest, Chris Dunn, to discuss the new and now of geofencing warrants. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in geospatial technology? Sure. Um, I, uh, when I got back from the Gulf War, I needed a job. And so I went to college and back at K-State, uh, GIS was hot and happening and uh, they had a great program and I just thought, well, this is the thing for me. And so throughout my career, I've had a, a variety of different uh, administrative uh, executive level jobs, but I always kept GIS on my desktop and I've always found it extremely useful. And then in, in 2011, um, I just decided hey, I'd like to go somewhere different. So I went to law school. And the entire time I'm in law school, I'm focused on geospatial issues in the law. And there wasn't a lot of information there. And everybody thought I was kind of a crackpot for trying to really dig deep into that uh, topic. But I've, I've, over the years, uh, since I graduated and passed the bar, I've really focused on geospatial issues. I run a small business that's a geospatial consulting firm. Basically, we make... Uh, 3D uh, demonstrative exhibits for other attorneys to use in the court of law or, uh, you know, property boundary dispute maps in conjunction with surveyors and that sort of thing. And this topic of geospatial warrants came up across my radar about a year ago. And the question that occurred to me is not whether they're constitutional or not. That'll get sorted out by powers much greater than I. But what should be the best practices and what kind of issues, ethical issues, might a geospatial person run into if they're asked to process one of these geofence warrants? So that's my intro. Thank you, Chris. Can you tell us a little bit more about the historical uses of location tracking and geofencing in geospatial technology and sort of where these warrants are coming from? Well, sure. Now, geofencing, like you said, has been a concept that's been around for a long time, and we've seen it um, really blossom in, you know, uh, on, on, you know, uh, UAVs and that sort of thing. But the geofence warrant, um, from what I can tell, is a relatively new thing. And let me give you some numbers. Um, I'm gonna look these up. The, um, they've been going, all right, in 2018, 
Google says it received 982 geofence warrants from law enforcement. In 2020, that number was 11,554. And so it's growing. I've also tracked, uh, you know, the mention of geofence warrants and Google search engines and that sort of thing. And this is mostly limited to states like California, New York, Pennsylvania, um, Virginia, where it's being used by law enforcement. And essentially a geofence warrant is this. Something illegal happened. Somebody robbed Bob's liquor store. Unfortunately, the clerk didn't survive. There's no good camera information. And law enforcement is sort of at a loss. This is the main scenario. So what they will do is they will create a polygon. And in that, they'll describe that polygon in the time period they're searching for in their warrant. They'll take that um, to a judge who, you know, is supposed to be skeptical and may issue the geofence warrant. And then the geofence warrant is typically just sent to Google because a lot of the other folks don't, um, uh, participate willingly in this. Google and AT&T tend to, um, uh, you know, uh, be more uh, accommodating to law enforcement. And as we all know, our phones are tracking us six, seven different ways to Sunday. You know, you've got the, the Wi-Fi, you know, the cellular uh, triangulation, and whether your GPS unit's on there or not. There's all sorts of ways the the, the phone um, is providing its position. And so once the, the geofence warrant has been issued, uh, they go to, um, they go to, you know, uh, Google and Google provides uh, a sort of a snapshot of everyone that, or every phone that was in the box or the, you know, the circle or whatever at that particular time period. And, they also provide a sort of um, uh, error factor in this table data dump that they give to law enforcement. And that um, information is processed by law enforcement and then they will pick from it, and we don't know how they select from it, um, some phones that they want more information on. So that's the second stage of a geofence warrant. Well, those. They'll send a request back to Google uh, or AT&T and say, okay, we've identified these. Please provide us with all of the information you have about that person, you know, uh, email address, name, you know, whatever they, they have on file. Now, the interesting thing is, is when Google does this search, they have this large location database that goes way back in time. They're literally searching every single person that's had an Android phone and um, in the United States, well, in the world. Um, and so it's a really vast search that um, it's sort of called a, a reverse warrant because uh, you're not, yeah, under the Fourth Amendment, you have a right to, um, to be secure in your person and your papers from an unreasonable search. And that search has to be signed off by a, a judge. And so, you know, the legal argument is, is this allowed under the Fourth Amendment? Is it allowed under the Fifth Amendment right to, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, 
stay silent and, and not uh, testify against yourself. And the Sixth Amendment, um, which is, you know, the right to confront the people that are giving testimony against you and this, this testimony. So there's a lot of really interesting legal issues tied up in that. And so the police or some form of law enforcement has has that database and then they start working it to see if any of those, uh, you know, people, suspects are uh, uh, caught up in the uh, illegal incident. So hopefully that makes some sense. Yes, thank you, Chris. So it sounds like there's um, quite a few places or, or black boxes in this process where we don't quite understand how the data is handled or selected. Um, you mentioned one being that law enforcement is selecting um, certain individuals from this list for further review, and you also mentioned that there's a little bit of uncertainty surrounding the data itself. Um, how might this uncertainty yeah. surrounding the data be an issue or an, an ethical question for a GIS analyst moving forward? Okay, so most law enforcement agencies that are doing geofence warrants uh, are contracting with uh, a few of the companies that process this information, and that's its own black box. We don't really have insight into their algorithms, and we don't have insight into, you know, if you just cut the corner of the box and you're only in there a second or two, you know, uh, are you eliminated or are you further investigated? You know, also the phones, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of uh, problematic issues with um, location data once you get into like a high reflectivity event where you've got multipath error, when you go inside a, a particular structure. And so it's, um, sort of a black box and we don't really know how these firms are processing it. And one of the things I'm trying to get ahead of this is um, by creating a set of best practices, because I have a feeling that someday, you know, the local sheriff's department's gonna use the local GIS office and say, hey, could you please process this for me? And that GIS tech, it's it's potentially full of ethical landmines, and that GIS tech should have some reference to uh, some articles on the ethics, and they should have uh, you know access to some best practices. And so I'm trying to develop that with some other folks that are interested in this, and I'm going to work with some uh, uh, criminal defense attorneys, which are you know normally everybody goes boo, but you know. When the government can track you just about everywhere, uh, I think they'll be a great ally. Yeah, one of the other things we ought to talk about is Stingray, which is a, a mobile device that law enforcement has access to, where they essentially emulate a cell tower. Now they typically target one person with that, and that's normally with a warrant. But they're pulling every bit of uh, data that's coming to and from that phone as well as other phones, but they're only supposedly copying the, the phone that they've got an ex, you know, a, a warrant for. And so there's all kinds of things out there that are gobbling up your data. And the general, uh, to summarize the law the way the Supreme Court has said is, do you have an expectation of privacy 
in your own cell phone and in your transmission. And a long time ago, they said, you do for the actual message content, you don't for the fact that you own a cell phone and you're you know, transmitting. Um, and so the government uh, isn't uh, violating your rights if they're just collecting the metadata that's out there in the ether. So it's, it's pretty complex. And like I said, other people will figure out whether these things stand up and are constitutional. And like most things in the law, the law is always going to be far behind the technology. So who knows, you know, when they, when the right case will eventually be accepted by the Supreme Court. Like what you said about the law always being behind the technology, that's a very interesting statement. Um, and, and given the legal questions and the complexities that you mentioned, what are you thinking about including in these best practices or what are some of the questions that you're currently pondering in developing these best practices for um, geofencing well, data management? Okay, so the Google um, accuracy information, it, it's a, basically it's a spreadsheet. They give you second by second. Here's a phone um, ID number. Here's the the Latin lawn, and um, then there's the uh, the accuracy column has has a number in it. We don't know the algorithm that went into calculating that. That would be kind of nice to know, um, or maybe we can you know reverse engineer that. Uh, with some experiments, but my plan is to work with some other folks, write this stuff up, put it out on the internet, and then have it, you know, just destroyed. Because you know, if you're going to really polish a policy, you know, the first thing you do is put it on the internet and wait for people to tell you where you're wrong, and just see um, if we can come up with uh, something that uh, an ethical GIS person can say, yeah, this this makes sense on how I should process this. I mean, we're, it's not an anti-law enforcement thing. Absolutely not. There are times and places where I think this is an ethical use of the technology. But I've been in situations where law enforcement has leaned on me to get a result. And we should talk about how how you resist that particular um, bit of pressure and how you can, you know, eventually the GIS tech is going to be called in to testify if they were the ones that processed that information. And not, you know, every small town uh, law enforcement agency is going to be able to afford the black box um, service provider that, that auto, uh, handles your uh, geofence warrant. So I have a feeling this is going to leak out into our field. I could be completely wrong, but it's. I think it would be a, a service to the community if we could get ahead of it. So. Thank you. Um, so we've, we've spoken a little bit about some of the data complexities and the developments between the legal aspects and the technology aspects of these geofencing warrants. Can you paint a broader picture of the legal landscape and sort of the issues that you see coming down the pipeline with these geofencing warrants? Sure. Um, you know, I'm no great legal scholar. I, I paid attention to the things 
that uh, seemed to be vaguely geospatial when I was in law school, and I, I try to keep up uh, with my reading. And, uh, you know, I've got some uh, Google alerts set up, so if a certain key phrase comes in, and I've tried to, you know, the media a lot often writes uh, very superficial articles about geofence warrants. You know, these are an invasion of privacy. They rarely, rarely talk about, uh, you know, the geospatial tech and, and practices uh, involved in processing this stuff. And um, so forming the best practices is um, not something you can really do from the media and in those reviews and there's there's only been a couple there have only been a couple really good um articles on this particular topic and one there's a harvard law review article out there it's fairly recent all you got to do is type harvard law review uh, geofence warrants and it'll come up but it's mostly a discussion of the um you know the legalities the constitutionalities so i'm hoping to spark a discussion on yeah, the actual tech. And what do you do when you get the file download and um, you're asked to process it and help find suspects? Or, you know, what do you do if they give you the file download and say, we've already got our suspect, can you confirm it? There's, there's all kinds of situations, I think, where, you know, when it comes to our geotech people, we ought to be prepared. I guess following up um, on that, two of the big data providers that you mentioned were AT&T and Google. Um, I know lots mm -hmm. of people have Android phones, but then there's lots of people that have iPhones, for instance. Um, is the, Does this mean that there's a disparity in the types of data that are available or that are being oh. used depending on oh, people's Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, one of the interesting facts I came across in researching this was that, um, uh, income challenged people and uh, people of color tend to go with Android a lot more than they go with, uh, you know, uh, Apple. And so when you write a geofence warrant, if you can't go to every database, you know, you're essentially just selecting from a subset of people. And, uh, you know, I don't own any Apple products. I, I have a hard enough time keeping one operating system in my head. But I do have to admire how Apple has resisted just sort of the strong arming by law enforcement. You know, they've had, uh, you know, law enforcement come at them numerous times to decrypt phones and other things. So that policy is, uh, I think, to be admired. But at the same time, it treats equally situated people differently under the law. And that's, um, I think, will be the prob probably the Achilles heel of geofence warrants when they go um, to the Supreme Court. The other hand, um, yeah, Congress could pass a law tomorrow saying, you know, you will cooperate with geofence warrants. And they're not, you know, other than, you know, resist the law with a lawsuit, they're not going to have much choice. And that may be coming down the road 
and you know law enforcement may lobby for that rather than lose um, the ability to uh, you know uh, issue a geofence warrant. And a lot of people talk about how facial recognition software was the big thing that targeted um, people that were in the, the January 6th events. And it, from what I'm reading, it was uh, geofence warrants. Uh, and so, you know, thousands of people have been um, identified because, you know, you go into the box, your phone is transmitting your location. And if I'm a defense attorney, I'm going to want to look at everybody and I want to see, well, were any of these folks with phones actually government agents in the box, you know, and what was their participation in this particular set of events? And, you know, that's thinking like a defense attorney, um, regardless of the politics involved in it. Who else was in, in the fray? And are you going to be able to get that data and, uh, you know, do your own reverse um, search? And will, you know, these folks cooperate and give you that information or will the government say it? And a lot of people that are identified by geofence warrants will never know that's how they were identified because if law enforcement can come up with another reason uh, for targeting that person, they don't necessarily have to disclose in the discovery period um, that technology. I know they go to great lengths to keep um, the uh, uh, Stingray technology under wraps and oftentimes will even drop a case if uh, the judge requires the disclosure of some Stingray information, depending upon, you know, the, obviously the severity of the case. So, and the other problem is most judges and people that are entering you know, who are approving geofence warrants or who are handling challenges to them are not techies. Typically, the most technical um, courts in the nation are out in California and, and New York. And so it's most likely to get, um, we'll, we'll get a case out of those two, I, I'm sure. It's judges are better able to understand the complexities. So my understanding then is that this these geofencing warrants and the, the information, um, the spatial information that is coming from them can be used in the courts without the disclosure that that's where the information itself is coming from. Is that correct? Could you say that again? Mm -hmm. um, so based on the example that you just gave, it could be that a geofencing warrant is used and that information is um, applied in court without oh, the sure. without the knowledge that that is kind of the incriminating evidence, I guess, if you will. Well, um, all right, if I was wanting to prosecute, uh, let's say somebody that uh, um, we believe robbed uh, you know, the liquor store, I, I would use something like, uh, you know, uh, when you've got uh, any one of the Esri products where they, they show time, so you could show that person's dot moving and, you know, in a geospatial context and you could show, okay, they were in there long enough to, uh, you know, commit the crime and then they fled. And so you can show them coming in the box and out of the box. And then I think once you've got that, 
you can go back and get more information say show me this phone's um uh tracking information for the uh, you know the the idaho killer they got his geospatial information off of that guy's phone for apparently months back and were able to show how he was maneuvering and shadowing um the potential the victims um and they also had their phones and you know if you show those two dots uh, exhibiting patterns that are consistent with the crime that's pretty compelling you know evidence so it could end up in court like that as well wow and it sounds like um as you mentioned before that there's only only some of the data might be available to the analysts who are asked to look into these um, warrants. They might right. have half of the cell phone data or part of the cell phone data and not the entire picture because of the availability and access to the data that law enforcement has. Right. And most GIS techs don't handle data sets that are, are restricted or that are, you know, considered confidential by the local government. And, you know, there are, um, and, and this kind of gets into open records. Every state's got its open records uh, law, and there's always an enumerated list of things that uh, the state is not required to share. It's not forbidden to share, but it's not required to share. And I have a feeling a lot of, um, this will either fall under an existing law enforcement exclusion from sharing, or perhaps will be adopted in, um, you know, state legislatures to say, you know, geofence warrants are uh, uh, confidential, or the geofence warrant data dumps are confidential and can't be shared. You've done such a good job answering my questions, Chris. Oh. Thank you. I'm yeah, I've been thinking about this for a while, but uh, until we get a lot of conversation going, um, yeah, I don't know where I'm wrong. I don't know what I'm missing, and I'm uh, kind of excited. It's uh, it's starting to get interest. Uh, I just recently presented about an hour on this topic up at the, the Wisconsin. Land Information Association's annual conference, and that was, uh, you know, that's their GIS people and their their registrars. And uh, by the way, a great conference if you ever get a chance to go visit with those folks. They're amazing. Moving forward, thinking about geofencing warrants, say ten or fifteen years from now, what do you think will be the big questions and the big issues that um, both the legal field and then the geospatial field will be wrestling with? Well, I think it's going to take somebody with very deep pockets or um, a uh, an association, you know, uh, like the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation. I don't know if you remember them, but they were sort of the early ACLU for computer data privacy, and they're they're located out in uh, uh, San Francisco, California, uh, but their website has really good uh, information about geofence warrants. You've got to dig a little bit, but they're, they're doing some good work. Uh, Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian organization, they're, they're doing some work on geofence warrants. So 
there the discussion has begun but there hasn't been an association that's kind of come around on this um or you know a treaty or allies I, I i'm not finding the right words we haven't had our little conference yet where we all start talking about the various ways of addressing this and so over the next i imagine few years there will emerge sort of a coalition of folks that are concerned about it and then eventually the right plaintiff will come along and they'll be innocent and yet their life will be ruined because they were caught up in a geofence warrant and then you have to lose at the local court you have to lose at the Court of Appeals, and then you have to petition uh, certiorari at the Supreme Court, and then they've got to take your case, and then it's got to be just, you know, the right set of facts challenging um, the constitutionality, and that may take a decade or so to emerge, um, and I don't know. You know, Supreme Court, I, I you know, there are people far more knowledgeable about how they they deal with things but from what i can tell is sometimes they ignore the law and just do what they think is best for the country which isn't always something i think is best for the country so who knows where it's going to go i hope to see it uh eventually uh dealt with one way or the other with at the supreme court but 10 to 15 years is probably the right uh, time frame. It definitely sounds like we're at the beginning of a discussion rather than rather than at the end of one. I think so. So Chris, are there any other things that I that we should know about geofencing warrants? My only suggestion would be for people to be aware of the information that's coming off of their phones and um, be a little skeptical about the end user license agreements that you click on uh, as you uh, authorize various apps and uh, you know look into that see see exactly what's being reported um, to these large databases uh, you know, like most, you know, the old the law enforcement saying is if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. Well, that's nice, but it's not always the case. Sometimes, um, yeah, your phone testifying against you is uh, something you should be concerned about. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. Um, and I wanted to also say thank you to Directions Magazine for having us.